Hi, I'm Amy Porter, and this is my podcast. My mission is to show people how to empower themselves through music, business, and media. I try to see as clearly as possible how I can help. I showcase the music that I've played and the people I've met along the way. I'm a wife and a stepmom. You might know me as a professor, a performer, a producer, a publisher, a recording artist. I'm the founder of a couple of nonprofits. Welcome in to my Porter Flute Pod. Welcome to Porter Flute Pod. It's time to sharpen your pencils. It's season four, episode six, and we are hearing from someone dear and near to so many musicians. Daniel Dorf. He's a publisher and composer, and he's worked for Theodore Presser Publishing since he was a young intern. Posing some questions for Daniel Dorf is our co-producer, Alan J. Tomasetti, and checking our vibe is Justine Sedke. Featured from the vault... On this episode is my performance of Sonata Three Lakes for Flute and Piano by Daniel Dorf from a performance in 2014 with pianist Katie Leung. Welcome to Porter Flute Pod. We're so glad Danny, the editor, is in the pod with us. Well, Danny Dorf, welcome to Porter Flute Pod. Well, thank you. Well, I want to start. Mm-hmm. by saying that you've been at Presser long enough to reach legacy status in our music world. Really. I mean, you've made it your life's work to work with an incredible bunch of composers and then bring it to this incredible bunch of people in, in niche audiences. You have chamber music. You keep coming out with beautiful music yourself every year. So it's just a pleasure to talk to you about, about theater Presser, why you keep working there and your own kind of compositional life. I have this problem, like musicians with day jobs. I love my job. And and that probably is key to a number of the questions on your list today, because it's sort of like a two-angle chat, because I'm two kinds of things, that I really love sheet music production, and I really love untangling things. So starting from a composer's let's say the word manuscript, whatever that means nowadays, and taking it through the same process that I would lavish the same love and TLC on my own music, and then getting all these other pieces taken care of and available to the public that way, and then there's a product, and then I see it in the warehouse. It is so satisfying, and I never tire of it. I started full-time there on July 1st, 1985, I was a proofreader, like a freelance proofreader from 1980. And then I started working in the office a few days a week in 1984. And they started training me and I ate it up. I, you know, everything about it was fascinating. The Not just the production, but the editing and the, the working on the covers and so on. And one day in 85, my mentor, who was the editor and had been the editor for like 40 years, or actually, you know what? I'm wrong. The the chairman, Arnold Broido, who I know that, that you know, he said, Walter's retiring next week. Would you like to be the editor of Presser? And I thought, what? <laughs> like, I'm 29. Like, and, and he looked at me like, what are you? How naive are you? We've been training you for this for the last few years. You know, you're you're exactly what we hoped would walk in the door. But how could that ever happen? So do you want his job? And I said, well, I don't know that I want a full-time job. That's why I wanted to. So I figured I would try it. You know, I was married without children yet, and I wanted to start a family. And I thought, okay, I'll see how it goes. And I'm still deciding 37 years later. (laughs) (laughs) But but seriously, I, I love it. And a lot of times when I'm in the office, I want to stay late and keep working on something. But at the same time, when I'm home, I could be working on a piece or on some other creative project on my own, and I don't want to go into the office because I'm into what I'm doing. So I've had to learn how to just work certain hours, and it was very hard mentally at first during the quarantine period because from mid-March 2020 until mid-March 2021, 
I was working from home, which I had always wondered what that would be like. Working from home was also like living in the office. That at any given time, I could do either thing. And so I learned. But but seriously, to answer your question, it is so satisfying. People say to me, will you retire when and if you get an inheritance from your family or if you suddenly started making tremendous money from your music, like if you did a film score? I don't know, but I doubt it. Because it's like it's part of what I do. They say that people that make money quickly still go back to work the next day. It's it's just mm-hmm. a currency. And I think that music and art is our passion. Mm-hmm. So uh, it seems like your passions haven't changed. They really haven't. Um, when I was in first grade, I got sent to the principal's office once for justifying my margins when I was writing some story. What? <laughs> and she thought I was being a wise guy. And I just was curious what would happen if instead of all the lines that I was writing with pencil were straight down the left side of the paper, what if I did it on the right side also? Because it was interesting. And I got in trouble. I used to get in trouble for everything. But but also I was, I mean, and this seriously, even though it sounds funny, I did correct my teacher's grammar a lot in elementary school because they would be teaching you know, if there's an E at the end, the previous vowel is a long vowel. And I would raise my hand because I knew a lot about English. I didn't know a lot about gra- uh, about good manners. And I would correct the teacher and say, well, what about this word and that word? And when I got to Presser and I was now the editor, I have music by George Rockberg on my desk, Richard Wernick on my desk, Ralph Shapey on my desk. These are my teachers, and I'm putting red marks on the scripts. And I thought, you know, it doesn't often happen like this. And I would joke around with them. They loved it because their their focus is to write to music, not to worry about if the dot goes under the line or above or, you know, stuff like that. Does everything you write get published? I know that's the dumb question, but you are the head of a publishing company. And Mm -hmm. and you would think, you know, well, he's not just writing his own music and it's the Danny Dorf show because I don't feel that at all. I am very careful to not take advantage. And, you know, I learned this early before I was in publishing, like don't buy at the hand that feeds you. My mom taught me a lot of golden rules and, and she was right. And what that means, well, for the first half of my years at Presser, I was lucky if I ever got a contract and I wasn't yet established in the world. There was, and this is a very interesting and important thing about Presser that it was until 2004 owned by the Presser Foundation. And they were mission-oriented. And as many of your listeners know, there was Presser scholarships, Presser halls, etc. And this is from the legacy of Theodore Presser, who gave his entire estate to a foundation to further music education in many different ways. A lot of it was philanthropy, and part of it was supporting the publishing company. And... Through evolution of Arnold Bordeaux's attitudes, which were very much arts-oriented and, and a sympathetic chairman of the board, the Presser Publishing Company from, let's say, the 70s until the turn of the millennium had a, a sort of mandate to be able to do anything they want with art as long as they were not operating in the red. So they could publish composers as if they were a nonprofit to an extent. And a lot of the composers 
whose music was experimental and extremely difficult and wouldn't be attractive to a commercial publisher, found a happy home, and that was part of why I was the right fit for an editor, because I was so in tune with that. Even though my own music is not like that, what I love is a broad palette, and what I write is, you know, one part of that. So I loved working with Shapey and turning his incredibly messy handwriting into nice engraving that's easier to play from, for instance, and likewise with, with many others. So in 2004, when we were bought by the Carl Fisher heirs, now there's somebody who personally owns the company or a family who personally owns the company, and, and it's different. Not too much different. I'm amazed and thrilled at how little different it is because we're still doing what we were doing. And the tide of composers has sort of changed also so that more composers care about performers rather than theoretically writing something that's different from what anyone else wrote before. Maybe that's a little prejudice of mine. But also, as this happened and the staff got smaller, I became more not autonomous because I still work with other people, but I became more of the gatekeeper, you might say, or the vision. Nowadays, anything I want Presser to publish, we will, and it will be handled appropriately because sometimes it belongs on rental and sometimes it belongs print on demand. I am very careful with our marketing department and our sales department to always say, treat me like I didn't work here. Treat me based on the products. No more and no less. Eventually, each new person realizes that I mean it. That's very healthy. It's very healthy for a company. And it also allows it to continue because I've known a lot of people who take unfair advantage of their position, which works for a short amount of time, but eventually not. But that's, you know, I'm there as two different people. I take my job as the publisher seriously and also my job as an artist seriously. Fortunately, the aesthetics of what I write tends to be pretty close to what's practical, what people want to play in their recitals and so on. And that certainly relates to flute, because if I had the kind of relationship with, let's say, the double reed world, there just aren't as many people playing those instruments and buying the music. And flute is wonderful. It's a win-win situation. When I started working at Presser, it was not a woodwind specialty or a flute specialty company, but we did go to NFA and no other instruments convention. Coral, you know, that's a big thing, but they never went to the saxophone conventions. Even when Presser represented all the French publishers who had really cornered the market on, on saxophone music back then and didn't go to clarinet. I think the only brass conventions we went to was when it was close, but NFA it's bigger and flutists have more of an appetite for the unfamiliar, which is great. Compared to string players, I understand it because the strings have all that great older music, but other wind instruments don't. We're, we're like the only part of the music business that's not a 501c3 or the classical music. You know, so publishers have to do things that will sell. And if you're presser and some others, um, you want it to sort of 
the Venn diagram between what you really believe in artistically and what will sell. Or sometimes find enough of what is marginal that will sell to underwrite your ability to publish something. What was happening is that the my colleagues um, in the late 90s were going to NFA a lot. Once in a while, I would show up if I had a piece being played, but not to work the booth, just to, to be there. And the Columbus NFA in 2000 was the first time I went and worked the booth. And that was when Jan Gippo premiered Sonatine de Giverny. I think that there were some other performances, but boy, what a concert that was. With Martin Amlin as the pianist. I was there. Uh, yeah. So that got me sort of hooked on going to NFA because I just loved the convention that people really wanted to see our music. They liked the fact that in addition to having a salesperson at the booth, I knew what was inside the pages because I had worked on these publications and I could tell them what was easy or hard or what's new for this combination or doesn't have a low B or whatever. And so it was a really good fit. And as I started going, I started to make more and more friends with people in the flute community because meeting face-to-face, there's nothing like it. Being a clarinetist and a saxophonist and a composer, writing for winds is so second nature for me. I mean, I, I breathe phrases. I don't mean that in a funny way, but I think wind players, I mean, look at Gary Shocker as a great example and Mike Mower that, you know, and Nicole. Wind players intuitively know how to write for wind players because they write for themselves we have to breathe. Phrases have arches that I don't think I write well for percussion. It just there's I write like a wind player when I'm writing for, you know, it just it all sort of makes sense. So that started to grow. And it as that started to happen. Then by coincidence, we had this young composer, Lowell Lieberman, who I had discovered. I mean, I, I, I was the first one oppressor to discover him. I know he was out there in at Juilliard. But I heard his viola sonata and talked to him and talked to Vincent Persichetti, who was a link between Juilliard and Presser, and said, I want this guy for our catalog. He's, he's the future. He writes great pieces that people are going to want to buy. And, and Vincent said, yeah, the only reason he's not there yet is I want him to go another year or two without that kind of immediate public face, you know, but... You got him in a few years, and I said, I want him now. So we started publishing his music, and one day I get a cassette in the mail from Lowell, and it says Paula Robeson, and I, so I listened to the sonata, and he sent me the manuscript, and I took it to the editorial committee, and I said, I think this one's going to be a good seller. I just It's hard to tell because a lot of times we're wrong. Sometimes I can be insightful without good manners being part of the insight. I've asked Pulitzer Prize winners if they feel that their Pulitzer piece is the best piece they've written, which is not disrespectful of them in the least. It's sort of disrespectful of the institution of prizes, maybe, but I think that all my friends who have won them deserve them, but maybe they don't think it's their best piece because they didn't write only one masterpiece. They wrote lots of them. But a combination of different things lead to that. Well, Paula played Lowell's Sonata, and he said at a gathering of friends, Paula's played my Sonata. I wish she'd play it more. And I thought to myself, <laughs> I'm entering the NFA competition, and it says in the application that they want an American work. And I literally said to him in a room full of people, hey, Lowell, I'll play your piece at a convention. And he knew the convention. And so I said, it's in Minneapolis. This was 1990. It was right after it'd been written. And um, Daniel, I think you brought seven copies. (laughs) Because apparently I played the piece. And the story goes that I wondered what happened. I thought, did I play that badly? Because... Everyone left the room. (laughs) 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 And within two minutes, you had sold out of all seven copies in Minneapolis. That was it. That was true. And the rest is history. And it's made me wonder for the last 30 years, how does a new piece of music catch on so that everybody feels it's a must-play piece 
There are so many other pieces that are really good by many composers that people love when they hear it. And they say, oh, I'm going to get this. I'm going to play it on my recital. But it doesn't become a must play or else you're not in the world kind of piece. And as a publisher and a composer, it's a fascinating question. It's what we always want. Well, let's talk about my, it's a strong word, but my hatred of publishing, <laughs> because there's always a risk of error. Uh, I can miss notes, but I really hate the flaws in publishing. Um, ownership of these flaws rely on so many departments. I learned that there's an art department behind the cover. Uh, there's an invoice department to the person who said yes to the project. It's super stressful, and I could use some podcast-worthy advice uh, for future publishers out there. Uh, I've sworn I would never come out with another edition, and then people ask me to, or it makes sense to go with the recording or the study guide, and I never seem to be able to, to do it right. So what's your advice? The most important thing, and this is advice to people who are sending their work to publishers. Future publishers is a much smaller pool than composers, performers, teachers. Do your research first, and you will, you will know from the music that you see published by them how careful they are or are not with what gets um, printed, how it's prepared, how available it is, whether or not they pay royalties, uh, you know, reliably, I think the most important thing that people may overlook is how committed are they to marketing to the niche that your product is in. One of the questions I get asked the most is regarding that, that for instance, with Presser, there are some things we do a lot, obviously flute music, but people send us handbell arrangements or easy choral music, which that's a real niche market. And they ask me, well, who should I send my handbell piece to? And my answer is, I don't know, but you probably know, because if you're a handbell director, who do you get promotional mail from? And that, that would be the same whether you're a trombonist or a percussionist or a flutist. If you don't get any pr promotional mail or you don't know of the new issues from a certain publisher for the type of music that you want them to publish, they're not going to have a way of getting your music out there. Now, these days, it's a lot different from a generation or two ago because of the Internet. Yes, and self-publishing is, is a big deal. But, but self-promoting, I mean, it's always been like this. It's, I think it's more pronounced maybe, but 30 or 40 years ago, the writers who promoted their own products did a lot better than the ones who relied completely on their publisher to do it because – Unless it's a very small publisher with a small catalog, there's just too many things that are competing for the attention of the marketing department. But we had one composer who wrote a book on slap bass guitar when it was new, before it became like everybody was doing it. And it was a great book, but that doesn't mean anything. But he took hundreds of copies in his little VW bug and drove around the country talking to every retailer that he could find. He spent 
several months. And it became an incredible bestseller because he invested the time. I mean, it's a ridiculous thing to think about now, but he spent the time making sure that everybody knew about it and not, and thinking of us as one of his partners and not somebody who was solely dedicated to him. And so the internet is great for that because we can do that. Composers can do that. We can retweet or repost whatever the composer does. The composer can do that to whatever we do. And also when you're doing something at a high level and you want it to be 100% successful, let's say you're going to record the Mozart quartets. You got to rely on all three of the string players and the engineer and the record company and the, you know, it's going to be the same thing anywhere else that unless you're doing everything yourself to have everybody live up to your standards is tricky. So again, you know, getting the piece accepted, that's a question I get asked the most and it depends on so many things. You know, when I was a, a teenager, I would ask older composers, how do I get famous? As if like, it's not how you get an MD degree, you know, People could tell me, do these following things, and then you'll have an MD degree. How do you be a famous composer? You know, there's not a, it doesn't mean get a PhD. That could be more like how do you get a teaching job? Well, I want to move from publishing mm -hmm. world to, mm -hmm. to really tell you that you have a very distinct style as a composer. It's very fulfilling, truly fulfilling as a listener oh, and a you. flutist. How do you compose? Um, when do you compose? Because you just, you know, we, we love your music. What do you, you know, how does all of that work? Very irregularly for me. And I know some composers you know, if you've ever watched this movie, The Music Lovers, Tchaikovsky would have tea at 8.15 and then from 8.45 to 11.30, he would sit down at the, you know, and he was so regimented. And I get the impression from reading his diary that that actually is the way that he was. And I have some friends who do that, too. And I can't imagine stopping in the middle of a good streak or sitting there if it's not. Since I have a day job, it's nights and weekends. But it's also... Once a piece is underway, it's going to be in my mind anyway. And driving to work, driving from work, hopefully not while I'm working on someone else's music, I'll get ideas in my head either, oh, this would be a good rhythm to do here, or why don't I modulate this way or this texture? And for years, I've realized it's a bad idea to have sticky pads in my car when I'm driving and like try to write on. But a dictaphone? And so there used to be just little dictaphones, but now every smartphone has built-in app plus extra apps. And I can talk to myself, which I do. While I'm driving, you know, I can say, try this in bar 17 or the next theme or the second movement could be this. Or, And that's not how I get started. The, the hardest thing always is getting started. And every piece, not every piece, almost every piece I've written has been preceded by a, oh man, what do I... I don't know how to get this thing going. Stravinsky said the scariest thing in the world for him was a blank piece of music paper because he can do anything. And how do you get started? Once I've got shapes and motives and, and whatever. And the first thing you write, I mean, most composers, I think, learn this easily. The first thing that you start writing doesn't mean it's bar one of where you're going. Exactly. It just means it's, you know, it's the, the little mold that makes the yogurt or the cheese. It gets you going. And very often my first sketches don't even appear in the final piece, but it's what got the engine going, what got the imagination pumping and, and so on. That happened to me this morning that I'm starting on a piece for Hat Trick, which is April Clayton's 
flute, viola, and harp trio. And I'm up to the point in life and deadlines where I'm, this is it. This is what I'm working on now. But I, I had some ideas conceptually, but a blank piece of music paper. And it's like, I better have a good idea because if I have a bad first idea and I keep going, it's going to be boring. Even though I've been through this hundreds of times, you know, if I have a bad idea, it will start getting carved out. My experience is once I have ideas, knowing what to do with them is easier, but I also need to keep it fresh. I mean, one of the things that I think is a, I don't want to call it a strength because I try to be humble, but one of the things that I do that other people have commented on is that it can be close to cliche or close to trite because it's similar to popular music or overlaps with popular music, but it can't be straightforward popular music. It's got to veer off. It's got to be related to imagination and be fresh. So how do I develop an idea and then also keep it fresh at the same time that it's in a vernacular style? I don't know. Imagination, messing around, habit. And you have, I, you, to, you have to change your inspirations. What, what's your latest inspiration? And, and, and you know, you have to, ch- as we said before, you have to change it up. So mm-hmm. what's your latest inspiration? I'm glad you asked that question because I can't speak for other composers, although I can guess. For me, inspiration is only musical. Most of my music is program music in the sense, I mean, you can see what's behind me. I know your listeners on a podcast can't. But there's covers of publications that are full of trees and plants and lakes. And so many of my titles are nature-inspired in a way. But realistically, that just gets me in a mood or a kind of state of mind. And, you know, maybe love of the beauty of nature is parallel to the love of the beauty of music. But to me, it's all about the sound. Whether it's the love of the flute or the love of the clarinet. Some of my pieces I feel work transcribed for other instruments and some don't. And it might have to do with sonority or it might have to do with just what that particular piece is doing, but it's always sound. I mean, to me, the love of what music sounds like is always the inspiration. And musically speaking, my ears, well, I, I feel like nowadays the whole world is like this, but when I was starting 50 years ago, it's a scary thought, right? I started composing in 1972 when I was 16. To me, there's never been any difference between rock and roll and jazz and classical and modern classical music compared to traditional or medieval. It's like, it's all the same 12 notes and there's a lot of different things you can do with them. And a major chord or a polychord is the same in Mio as it is in, you know, whether Michaud being sort of pan-diatonic dissonance. I mean, Michaud is a lot like Stravinsky when it comes down to it. Their pan-diatonic dissonance is the same in both of them. They might have gotten there in different ways. And, you know, so sometimes I wind up sounding like Copeland. You know, we're both doing pan-diatonic dissonance in different ways. And so what? There's sort of two kinds of composers. And some are both. And I don't mean this at all in a good or bad way. There's like two different motivations, you might say. Some really are about pioneering a new approach. And Berlioz, to me, is like Berlioz and Beethoven, the you know, the real old ideal of that. In the 20th century, I think that was considered more important. And there are those who want to create repertoire or music that people love playing. And to composers like that, I mean, think about Brahms and Bach. They're titanic, and they, but they didn't invent new kinds of music. They took existing models to a higher level of development, you might say. And, you know, I'm certainly more in that camp. You think mm-hmm. about Poulenc, you know, or Rachmaninoff. There's nothing in Rachmaninoff or Poulenc that was of that year or of that decade. It's just incredibly beautiful music that holds up over time.
Okay, so you studied with George. But Brown. then I was friends with him later. Yeah, at Penn, and then many years later, I was doing a project with Ann Crum, his daughter, and so I was sort of hanging around that house a lot and got to, to sort of re-know him as a. I can't say as a peer, but at least as a former student, <laughs> as a grown-up, I, I would never call him a peer. But, you know, I, I could call him by his first name. <laughs> what was it like to study with him, and how did that affect your composing? It was wonderful. And I can say this about other some other composers who wrote completely unrelated to my aesthetic. Some were just nasty and condescending. Others, like George, were of the opinion that everybody's got to find their voice and then find how to make the best of, you know, how to use what they found, which is all I've ever wanted in a teacher. And some teachers could do that or were willing to do that and others not. So George was all about that. He didn't have a style prejudice. His prejudice is if I got boring, he said, <laughs> that, you know, is that what you're really after? But as you know, and, and any of your listeners who have, worked with him though he's the sweetest guy he was the sweetest guy ever would never say anything that would make anyone uncomfortable and so in lessons at first he was very gentle and not incisive not critical and after a few I said Dr. Crumb could you be mean to me or or at least you know more critical and he said well you know I don't like to be discouraging I said well I got into Juilliard and I chose Penn instead just to study with you because I wanted to learn from you. And if you don't give me constructive criticism, I will have, you know, squandered a different opportunity. So it actually would hurt my feelings if you're not tough on me. I can take it. I have a lot of self-confidence. And boy, it worked. <laughs> because, I mean, he even raised his voice once in a while in my lessons. To You know, not in a mean way to say, but you don't have the same motive in any two consecutive bars. How do you expect people to pay attention? Like, that's great. <laughs> that's what composition students need to be told. And, and when you hear it from George Crumb, it has right. nothing to do with style. It has to do with drama, structure, building over time, which is as true of Bach as it is of, well, I was going to say Carter, but I won't say that's a bad <laughs> example. Let's say Stravinsky. Well, you're not afraid to push boundaries. And you've written for traditional instrument combinations like flute and piano. One of Alan, our producer's favorite piece uh, that you've written is your Contra Bassoon Concerto. So how do you decide what instrument combinations you write for? Uh, and is there anything you haven't written for that you'd love to? Yeah. Well, gosh. It's hard to say. You know, the Contra Bassoon Concerto came about, actually, there was a bassoonist in Philadelphia. I don't know if you knew Norman Spielberg, because I know that you grew up around here. He he was in a position with the concerto soloists of Philadelphia, where he could play a concerto every single year. And he did. Because th they were all about, like, rotating soloists in a chamber That's orchestra. That's right. And, I, and I he came to me and, and said... I could play a different Vivaldi concerto every year for the rest of my life. And like enough already, could you write me a Contra Bassoon concerto? And I started laughing and he looked at me like, hello, you're a bass clarinetist. Don't you get it? And I said, well, I love the Contra Bassoon, but I really like writing pieces that more people will play after the premiere, because if I'm going to spend that much time, I wanted to get a lot of performances. And he said, okay, well, just remember this. Every orchestra has a contrabassoon player. Every professional orchestra has an excellent contrabassoon player. And there are not any pieces out there that people like to play. He said, there's a few really far out pieces by famous people that people don't like to play. And there's a bunch of things that are F major scales and arpeggios written by old bassoon players. He said, but you know how to write for woodwinds and you love low woodwinds. I know you as a bass clarinet player. We were sitting in an orchestra rehearsal and I had a bass clarinet in my hands when he said this. So I wrote that piece for him and it's, you know, it, as some of you know, it, you know, like the way I write for bass flute or piccolo, it's woodwind music. And if it goes low on a low instrument, it's a beautiful sound. I loved writing those pieces 
for Wendy Stern and Kathleen Nestor, a piece for two bass flutes and piano, and I just finished one for them for two alto flutes and piano. What a beautiful sound, my God. I don't know why there's not a whole lot of literature for that, but maybe because it's only recent that a lot of people have those instruments. But Theodore Presser has published a lot of alto flute music. <laughs> yes, and, and more and more. And as we get ready for the NFA convention, we've got alto flute solos coming out from Chris Potter and Allie Ryerson and me, the, um, the piece for two altos. That's great. Hey, so when was this Contrabassoon Concerto written? In the early 1990s. I had, or started in 89, I started it with my son on my back in one of those kind of carrier kinds of things. And he's like making all this kind of baby noise. He didn't want to be hearing the piano. So that, like 30 years ago, but that's been performed a lot. The Colorado Symphony played it a month or two before everything closed down for COVID. And it, it does get performed and it led to other contrabassoon music. I appreciate being on the short list of people who you send music to. And I'll never forget the Christmas that you sent me. Nocturnes for the Nativity. You did. You sent me that and I played it in um, in church uh, the next year. Uh, the other thing. Uh, but that YouTube is so beautiful. Wow. And so, and so popular. Oh. That, I mean, that's really a flagship performance. Thank of, you. Of that piece. I want to mention, uh, you fondly call it Three Latkes. <laughs> well, okay, so Sonata Three Lakes. Yeah, three Lakes. okay. Sonata, you sent to me, and I fell in I love sent you with the it. Gag cover. Did I send you all the gag covers? Because I have Sonata Three Lakers with, it's got Shaq and Kobe and all that, and they're in the water. And that, yeah, Three Latkes, I, I went over to Jaime's Deli and took some pictures. And, oh and you know, you know. Um, part of it is intentional. I learned something, or let's say something I sort of knew, but I really learned in a focused way listening to Libby Larson talk to a keynote speech of the ASOL convention once when I was there. And she said, you know, all of your performers, they always have to practice. She said, nobody realizes that composers have to practice also. We have to practice our imagination. Because if you keep practicing your imagination, it will be warmed up when you need it when you go to work on a piece. So this is really true for anybody, no matter what you do. And Amy, I know you're like this because you make up new businesses. You make up new projects other than, you know, in addition to playing flute, that this is your nature to always be thinking, right? Yeah. What else can, what else can I do? And I know, you know, some composers will create a concert series, even if it has nothing to do with them as a focal point. And some people write crossword puzzles, you know, and keep them on going. I, I love doing gag covers, making <laughs> jokes. I wish I were better at Photoshop. Um, but that keeps that part of the, the mind going. And I mean, I know from we were talking about holistic stuff before you turn the microphone on. I know from people who do like hands-on therapy and chakra tuning and all that, what I have experienced after reading about it, that what they call the throat chakra is more than symbolic, that it's, it's you know, opening this up, I don't know. It would be, business. that would be the fifth chakra. Yeah. Okay. We're, we're in tune with each yes. other. Right. That, that, Opening your mouth, ideas coming out of your mouth is is or can be very related to ideas going through your head. So when like this morning I sat down and thought, okay, I have to write a piece for flute, viola, and harp, and I already have the challenge of not sounding exactly like Debussy with every piece I write, which is certainly in a world often similar to Debussy. 
how do I, how do I write my own music without, I mean, that, that repertoire, even though hundreds of people have written for it, it's still the Debussy trio. It's such an odd combination of instruments that has one masterpiece in it and a, a lot of good contemporary pieces. And so where's me? Where's my voice? So I think subconsciously, I mean, the question, the unanswered question when you talk to composers is, where do, you, where do your ideas come from? Because, you know, it isn't from listening to the birds or looking at the flowers in my garden. Um, my moods can come from that. My, who knows what, you know, biochemistry in my brain may be affected by, I have a garden outside of the window in the room where my piano is. I, I never got a motive from the flowers. <laughs> right. But but sometimes if I'm in the middle of writing and I need a little break, rather than banging my head against the piano saying, how do I solve this problem? I don't have to go for a long walk or go do something else. I can just sort of stare out the window and just relax that way. You know, it's funny. I love doing crossword puzzles, and it's really very similar. It It's solving a problem. I used to love math and formulas when I was little solving a problem sometimes means erasing some of the path that you went on and redoing and if you're writing a fugue or trying to come up with a new melody sometimes the answer isn't how do I solve the exact problem I have how do I back up Uh, a friend of mine who used to be Presser's IT person went into IT because he had a doctorate in composition. He couldn't get any jobs and he was prone to it. But he said there was a think tank in outside of Boston that was a computer programming, but they would only hire people with doctoral degrees in composition because they knew that anyone who can write a fugue can do computer programming. Oh my. And I thought it was maybe a little exaggerated, but he said, no, we're talking Boston. There's a lot of people with doctoral degrees who can't get work in Boston. And But the logic behind it, I think, is very true, that problem solving is not always front to the end. You know, it, you got to know where you're going and how you need to get there. Well, it's easy when you write something like Three Lakes. These are three lakes that profoundly impacted you, something in nature, mm-hmm. You went out and and you were able to start with with you know pen to paper with a memory. Mm-hmm. But writing for this new piece, perhaps you don't have a memory to tap into. Yeah. Well, so April had talked to me a little bit before the pandemic, so I knew that this was likely to happen. And then two years later, once she and her group could get back together and talk about fundraising, I, I heard from them. So I was sort of thinking about it. We were having a a group phone call with with her trio and me and just sort of mapping out timeline and commission terms and all that and possible performances. And the violist mentioned something about how we most summers he gets an opportunity to play at the Big Sky Festival in Montana, which is at one of the universities or, or nearby. And that might be a good place for a premiere. And I said, I can't believe what you just said. Big Sky, I've been to Montana, and the Big Sky there was absolutely breathtaking. Incredible. This New York City boy, yeah. And I've been to, you know, other states, but there's nothing like the Big Sky in Montana. I said, give me a day to think, but I have a feeling that is going to be the name of the piece and the concept that underlies it. So as of today, I'm thinking it's a two-movement piece, one's about the – big sky in the morning and all that. And another one is at night with all the stars that has nothing to do with anything, but the mood of those two movements. So I was going to say with three lakes, I had a very clear program and mood and pacing kind of idea. I knew that when you're in a lake, like on a float, there's just sort of this gentle rocking of sort of a little bit of a tideish kind of thing. And I thought, Okay, I want to have a tempo that sort of does that to the extent that I can to feel like you're like sitting in a canoe on Salmon Lake or whatever. But from there, it's just musical composition to then carry out what the background would be. The The inspiration is sort of on two levels. The the overall, just like La Mer didn't, you know, La Mer, I don't think Debussy wrote it at the beach. 
<laughs> and and Copeland never was in Mexico and right. You know, so but it's it's what triggers the imagination can then get the imagination doing its own thing. Well, you're so imaginative. I think I have to end this conversation by telling you I can't get a dozen eggs out of the fridge, open it up, and choose an egg without thinking of you because one day you posted, <laughs> one day you posted, how do you get your eggs out of the carton? And there are four different ways, and everybody was weighing in on how they take eggs out of the carton. And if you were going to drop the eggs, if you took them all out at one side at first, and I just thought, what do people sit around thinking about? Now they've got me thinking about this. So I have a window now into your brain because, you know, you said when I was a kid, I used to correct my teachers, draw margins in the lines, and you're thinking about, like, Anytime you post, it is the, it's classic humor. It's beautiful. It's hysterically funny. And I think of you every time I go for the egg carton. You know, <laughs> I vaguely remember, I don't know what caused me to ask that, but I know it's like, you know, if I make an omelet, I can take these two or these two or, you know, different, right? But what if those 12 eggs had pitch names written on them since there's 12? I wonder how Schoenberg dealt with taking eggs, a dozen eggs out since he was into tone rows. There's a question for you. <laughs> I mean, because he was, as far as I understand, he didn't really turn it off ever. You know, his mind was always 12 and 13 is a bad luck number. And I love Schoenberg, even though I would never really write my own voice like that, but I, I certainly enjoy listening to Schoenberg. And the reason why he wanted to have a systematic way to rotate pitches was to stay fresh and not overdo one pitch. But it's, that's the same thing that Brahms did and Bach did in that I learned in species counterpoint, like to, you know, that it's just sort of a different grammar or a different vocabulary. But if you repeat the same too much, the same pitch too much, it gets boring. So how do you, when you write a melody, and it's true of the best pop song composers, that you you weave your way around and you, you have to think carefully. So 12 tone is, it's the same mental trick. When I studied with Ralph Shapey, he was on one hand the worst I ever had as far as being condescending about tonal language. And we would fight and curse in ways that I won't repeat on your podcast um, at many lessons. And that's what he was like. And he knew that he was challenging me to see what I would say and to make me think. But I think he also meant it. And it was a good combination. So he was always lambasting me for writing like Debussy and being, you know, what was going on 80 years ago. And I said, you're writing 12 tone music, which was also being written 80 years, right? And, yeah. and so we had a f another fight from there, right? <laughs> and, but he said, okay, look at it this way. You're what, 24 years old? You most probably have a long, long life ahead and 50 to 80 years more composing to do. Think of it as not as my teaching had a make decisions. Think, think of it as a skill in juggling notes. He said, do you ever complain if you have to take like Palestrina counterpoint or write pieces in the style of Bach, like a fugue? I said, no, because nobody's telling me that's anything but a skill exercise and it helps me control the notes. I'm not going to grow up to write like Bach or Palestrina. And he said, okay, well, this is the same thing. Write like Shapey, Except now you're actually getting it from the source rather than from a music theory teacher. So it's even better. And play ball with me for the next 10 weeks and burn it all up. And maybe you will have learned something about composing technique that will help you later on in the language that you want to write in. And boy, 
that was incredibly true. If he says, pick three pitches that clash with each other and write a piece that only has those three pitches, I'm not going to have that on a recital in Carnegie Hall, but as an exercise, yeah, it's great. This probably is or isn't of interest to your, your listeners, but the piano behind me. Yes. This was bought by Theodore Presser, the person, in 1918 to be the main piano for the publishing office and the retail store in Center City. When Presser was really the biggest publisher in the United States, Theodore used to give loans or give some music to Shermer to help them stay in business because he wanted competition. He didn't want to be a monopoly in, in publishing. And so the retail store was near the Philadelphia Orchestra Academy of Music. This was the piano that was in an arcade upstairs so that um, people could play it for the people shopping for the sheet music downstairs and the people upstairs could play it. And my mentor in Bryn Mawr, started in the Philadelphia store because, you know, he had started way back then. And he said, I know this piano from when we were in down in Philadelphia because it was that public piano. And when Rachmaninoff was in town, he'd come by and he'd play it for the customers in the store and Ravel played it for the customers in the store and Sousa, you know, he lived in Philadelphia and, and Stakowski and all these other conductors. This was the public piano and, you know, it was like bigger than Patelson's in New York as far as the presser retail store. When sheet music, you know, in 1920, sheet music was it. There were no records or whatever. And I've heard this from somebody who was there. But a few weeks ago, it's just on my Facebook page if you want to look. A few weeks ago, a picture surfaced of Rachmaninoff leaning on this exact piano and it's got a funny front, you know, so, but I thought it's not the only Steinway O, but I sent a picture to a few old employees and I sent it to Tom Broido, who he was at Presser forever, right? And he saw the picture and he said, don't you recognize what's behind Rachmaninoff? Those are the bookshelves that we had in Bryn Mawr. Of course, that's him at Presser with your piano or, you know, with the Presser piano. So now I've got a picture of Rachmaninoff not playing the keyboard, but like leaning against it, pretending to be drawing on a manuscript. But, you know, it, it's certainly this instrument. Wow. And you compose on it? Yeah, but only in D flat. No, I'm joking. <laughs> well, that, that's the key of the 18th variation, you know. So uh, it was the presser piano all the way through Bryn Mawr. I saw Lowell Lieberman play on it. When he visited our office, I saw Persichetti compose on it. He wrote his parable for two trumpets sitting in the office one day. And it was Rockberg's office piano for a while. Um, when we left Bryn Mawr for King of Prussia, we were going to a smaller space. And they had to sell the piano. And the foundation wanted to sell it for a large amount of money because it was a sort of heirloom. Nobody was biting that you know, it isn't like a Stradivarius violin that appreciates and appreciates it. It was a good Steinway O that needed some work on the legs and the dampers and all that. And I said, I really need a baby grand. I, I need a good piano with a middle sustained pedal. Like, I'm too old to be working on an upright without a middle pedal. But I can't afford that. I said, let me know if no one wants it. So a day or two before they were going to move and start wrecking the building, they said, okay, you're on. I got a piano mover in right away. And so this has been my piano since 2001. So Giverny, I didn't write on this because that was before 2001, but Three Lakes I wrote on this and everything else from the last 20 years. And it's interesting, a few pianists have rehearsed here and said, oh, now I understand your pedal markings. If you wrote three lakes on this piano, now I know what you meant. And it's funny because every pianist has played the pedalings the way I wanted, even, you know, so I guess they guess correctly. What a great story. I love that. 
So I'm excited to hear your new piece at NFA. Are there, is there only one premiere that you're having at the convention in August? Well, uh, Wendy and Kathleen, along with piano, will be playing this piece called Swans, which is for two alto flutes and piano. It takes the idea of swans as being larger and graceful. Swans and alto flutes certainly have that in common. Yes, and, I, and there will be swans on the cover. Absolutely. Yes. Um, one of my flute friends is also a photographer, and I saw her posting pictures of swans on her Instagram. And I said, would you like to have this on the cover of a presser publication? Because she's a an amateur flutist, and th- it would be a real thrill to be involved with that. It's a gorgeous picture. So th- there's that and some older pieces. And I don't always know. You know, until NFA announces what's on the program, I don't always know. Can I tell you a secret? Sure. It okay. won't be a secret once you broadcast it, but yeah. <laughs> I'm going to play Lowell Lieberman's Sonata again. This summer? At the NFA. Cool. As part of the Winners Recital Legacy Winners. Oh, right. I see. So I... I won the NFA competition with this Lieberman in 1990, as I told you, and mm-hmm. also uh, with Martin Balad. And so they kind of went for it when I said, well, why don't I just play what I played in 1990? Mm-hmm. It was a box sonata, which I don't need to play. And then some random piece that no one plays anymore, the commission. And then um, Martin and Lieberman. And so they went for it. So that'll be on Saturday afternoon. And I'm excited. Well, thank you for being my guest today. It was so insightful to have you here and really great to see you as a friend. And I know every time we see each other, it's like no time has passed at all. Yeah. And we keep getting younger and younger. And We do. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. So I'm so thrilled to hear that you're – what else are you doing at NFA? This is a big year. I'm going to keep that secret because it's still okay. being worked on. But the Martambalot okay. and the Lowell Lieberman, I'm definitely playing. And I'm bringing Liz Ames from Ann Arbor, and it's going to be a Oh, you job. know, I've always wanted to meet her. I Like, I know her online, and I know what she does. She's a rock she's, star. She is a rock star, especially because I'm a saxophonist originally. There and you she's, go. she is it for saxophone. Well, we'll see you in August. Yeah. Well, thank you for being on Porter Flute Pod, Danny. Thank you for having me. It's such a, a thrill and an honor. You know, I look through your list. I listen to the podcast. I look through the list of everyone who's been here. And I'm thinking, how did I get on that list? Maybe <laughs> it was a mistake. <laughs> I once got an opera commission by mistake, but that's, they thought they were asking someone else. <laughs> hey, it's my honor. Yeah. It was so interesting to discuss the rich history of the Theodore Presser Company. You can find more about Daniel Dorf, his career, and his compositions at danieldorf.com. That's D-A-N-I-E-L-D-O-R-F-F dot com. It's finals week at Michigan, so I need to take this week to focus on the end of the school semester. You can join us next podcast in two weeks when we turn the table towards female composers, to share what they know as their journey. It's always evolving. I have questions about everything from female composer burnout to the ability to continue to rise and shine. You can find me at my websites, amyporter.com and porterflute.com. And on social, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube, I'm Porterflute. Thanks for being here. I'm so grateful for you.